Welcome back everyone to the Health Policy Student Association's Health Policy Checkup. My name is Ellie Jorling and I will be your host today. I'm a graduate student at the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan, and I'm a member of the HPSA Education Committee. And my name is Rani Sharapani. I'm co-hosting today. I'm a graduate student at the School of Public Health and a HPSA Education Committee members alongside Ellie. On today's episode, we'll focus on the Affordable Care Act with Jonathan Cohn, Senior National Correspondent at the Huffington Post and author of The Ten-Year War. Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Jonathan Cohn. Welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, very excited to be on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I had you in class last year, uh, Ellie, and it's nice to see you again. And I'm honored to be now uh, talking to uh, other Ford students, hopefully. Um, In terms of my background, I've been in journalism for, okay, now I got to do math, but it's been more than a decade. Let's just leave it at that. Maybe a lot more than a decade, maybe even more than two decades. Um, I've spent a lot of that time covering healthcare. Uh, I had for a long time worked at, I worked at the American Prospect and the New Republic for many, many years before coming over to HuffPost. Uh, This book, uh, my first book came out in 2007. It was called Sick. It was about the sort of case for what you know, sort of a description of the American healthcare system and where it, I believed it fell short and the case for universal coverage. Timing wise, happened to appear right on the eve of the 2008 presidential campaign. So that turned out to be fortuitous because then we spent a lot of time as a country talking about healthcare. I got to watch the debate over the Affordable Care Act. And actually, as I was covering it, thought to myself, gee, my, this might make a good book someday. I'm a little slow. It took me a while. Also, it was never really clear for a long time if the law would be around for that long because of all the repeal efforts. And in fact, in the end, the book that you described is about the law and and, and what made it, uh, 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 how it came to be, looking at the backstory, but also then the fights over it afterwards and made it hopefully as a case study, not just in health policy, but in how laws are made or for better or worse in this country. And I live in Ann Arbor and I'm a lecturer at the Ford School and I have two kids, one who just graduated from the University of Michigan and one who is now a freshman. And my wife is a professor there. So I'm like the least University of Michigan person in the family. But I like to think my allegiance to all things blue and Wolverine runs as deep as theirs. So in 2021, you had this book, The Ten-Year War, where you mentioned the lead up to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And I was wondering, what were the sources of inspiration for the Affordable Care Act? And how were large-scale efforts for health care up to that point attempted, and why did they ultimately fail? Yeah, so, I mean, the the conceit of the book, the structure of the book, the title, the subtitle, The Unfinished Crusade for Universal Healthcare, that was all chosen very deliberately because I very much see the Affordable Care Act as not the end point, but the latest phase, or at least it was when I wrote it, the latest phase in a crusade an effort to establish a universal healthcare system in this country that traces back to the early 20th century, which is really when um, modern medicine, so, you know, and we enter the era of modern medicine and becomes expensive. And for the first time, people have to pay for healthcare. And there's all these challenges. And uh, most other countries, usually earlier in the 20th century, developed, you know, sort of saw this as a public responsibility, something, a, a right they wanted to guarantee to all people. And they believed that the most efficient way, as well as the most equitable way, 
Tandle Healthcare was to have one national system where the government manages the healthcare economy one way or another and guarantees everyone has insurance uh, for uh, a list of reasons that I go into in the book that did not take place in the United States. Um, and uh, we kind of went on a different path to this sort of patchwork system that we have today. Um, but along the way, there were several efforts to create a national health system in the United States. Um, it was discussed during the Roosevelt administration. Harry Truman actually made it a priority, gave a big speech to Congress, promoted a plan that failed. Um, the sort of uh, remnants of that became Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s. And when they were done with that, they tried again to do universal health care when Nixon was president. Um, there was an effort when Bill Clinton was president. And then finally, the, the Obama effort. And, and one of the things you see as a kind of theme, and, and this was a theme of my course, and I was going to laugh because I said this all, I had a little slide that would make this point, is that we, we sort of repeat history. I, I used a reference to Battlestar Galactica for those who remember the reboot about how, you know, God, I don't remember the quote anymore. I got to relook at my slides. But, you know, everything we've done before, we've seen before, we're going to do it again. We just keep repeating these cycles. So it's this constant rehash of the same debate. The one difference is with each effort, each new generation of reformers tries very hard to learn from the mistakes of the previous generation and to correct for them. Partly as a result, for better or worse, uh, as you go through time, every new effort to do healthcare reform ends up sort of adapting a little more to the system that's already in place. Because one of the things that people keep learning is that change itself is very scary to a lot of people. Our system, for various institutional structural reasons, our political system makes change difficult. And so with each succeeding successive effort, they, there's a sort of recognition, okay, we tried to change too much previously. Let's not try to change as much. And you finally end up with the ACA, which really is an effort just to plug the holes in the system as much as anything else, at least on the insurance side, um, and not try to remake the system. And you know that leads, on the one hand, so a lot of the frustrations with what it didn't do and the way it turned out, on the other hand, you know, it actually passed, which you can't say for most of the previous efforts. That's that's really interesting because you mentioned learning from the mistakes in the past. So I, I, I suppose what made 2008 the, the right time to start launching something akin to a more affordable healthcare in the United States? Was it just sort of a a, a lucky break that uh, everything was able to happen at once? Or was it because of Obama's leadership? Or was it sort of just like an amalgamation of a lot of different factors? Yeah, I think there were a bunch of different factors. Um, so again, so first of all, the first thing you sort of notice in history is that there's a kind of, there's a kind of ebb and flow to this, right? Because healthcare is a big deal. And if you're going to do something big on healthcare, it's going to, it's going to be a major political preoccupation. Everyone's going to gear up for it. And the pattern is, you know, you sort of gear up for it, you fail, and then everyone kind of waits for a while and goes into their corners. And then there's sort of this sense that, oh, wait a minute, the problems we were out to fix, they haven't gone away. They're actually getting worse. So we're going to try this again. And to some extent, that's, you know, sort of the sort of uh, in my book and the course, a lot, I spent a lot of time talking about the failure of the Clinton healthcare plan in the 90s as this sort of peak era of activity. People, people who weren't around then might not know. It felt very much like the fight for the Affordable Care Act. It was all consuming for almost a year. It was the White House's chief preoccupation. It was this very spirited political fight. Of course, the Clinton plan just totally failed and they, they got killed and the Democrats got killed in the midterms. And basically nobody wanted on the Democratic side 
wanted to go anywhere near healthcare for a while. And the Republican side very much was content to leave the status quo. I mean, that was sort of their position by the end was that we don't think the healthcare system is great, but we're convinced anything you do to it will make it worse. We're happy just to kind of live with it. So there was this sort of long period when it wasn't getting political attention. But while that was going on, you had a sort of community of people who, who pay attention to this. They work on this. They, you know, they were professionals. They were analysts. They were advocates. Everybody from unions to longtime political activists who understood, I think, history. And they, they were no less interested in healthcare reform just because the political system didn't have the bandwidth for it. So they spent that time kind of building up to it and really laying the groundwork intellectually and politically organizing you know, just as an example, um, SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, which became a very powerful union during this time, in part because of who it represents. You know, we think of unions so frequently, the stereotype at least it used to be, you know, the hard hat, the auto worker, the steel worker, the miners. And obviously that's still a huge part of the labor union. But today, you know, it's only it's more of a pink collar uh, than a blue collar, right? It's, 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 it's people in service industries. It's more um, predominantly women, people of color. And, you know, a lot of nurses, a lot of health aides who A, were in healthcare and B, often didn't get health benefits. You know, they didn't have the benefit of those auto industry. Now, auto workers have always had good health insurance because of deals struck in the 50s. That's a legacy of that. So there was this buildup of energy to promote healthcare. And SEIU is a really interesting example because number one, they were out there organizing in like the 2004 campaign. They went to all the Democratic primaries, like you have to talk about healthcare. And then in 2008, they basically put the word out and said, we're this very important union. You're probably not going to get the Democratic nomination if we're not on your side eventually. And we will not even think about endorsing you unless you have a real universal health care plan. And so that was the price of admission to get their attention. And so all the candidates did that. So you had that going on. You know, the, there's an economic cycle to it. Um, health care had become an issue in the 90s for the Clintons, in part because they were coming off the early 90s recession. And that really, you know, gave right. You know, had a lot of people losing their jobs, feeling insecure about health care. They might lose their insurance. And that kind of gave rise to that effort. Now, by the time they're done, the economy is in the rebound. And one of the reasons people lose interest in healthcare, suddenly people are feeling more secure, at least those who have employer benefits, which is not everybody, but it's enough people, it's enough influential people that have kind of lowered the temperature. Well, you move ahead and you know, insurance is starting to deteriorate again. You get to the 2008 recession. Again, you have people losing their jobs. You have people worried about health insurance. So it's become a public issue again. Um, there was added to that, there was more of a recognition than before that the overall cost of healthcare was a burden to everybody, business, the economy as a whole. I mean, we knew that 20, 30 years ago, but it was sort of this sort of thing out there that wasn't talked about. And, and one of the things that reform advocates did differently after the Clinton healthcare fight, they were aware of the fact that they had gotten killed by special interests who were opposed to it. So part of their strategy leading up to 2008 was to make a very concerted effort to turn would-be adversaries into allies, or at least keep them neutral. So uh, there were all these groups that formed. One of them was actually called the Strange Bedfellows Coalition. There was, so I, I forget the name of which group was which, but there was one group that was founded by a guy. One of the co-founders was Ron Pollock, who was a longtime advocate for universal health care coverage. And he was a consumer advocate, very much from the sort of what you would think of as the liberal you know, institutional liberal. And he basically became partners with Billy Tozan, who was the head of pharma. And you had people reaching out to like National Association of Manufacturers. And the, and the, and the feeling was, look, if you're an employer, this isn't a good situation for you either. 
you want to get healthcare costs under control. Maybe you don't really care about universal coverage, but you want to get costs under control. At the end of the day, we're better off doing this all at once. So they built these alliances. They didn't always last these alliances and they didn't really agree on that much necessarily. But there was this kind of baseline assumption going into 2008 that I don't think was there before that even a lot of traditionally conservative interests had a stake in seeing some kind of successful healthcare reform. And in fact, that did in the end, I mean, the deal that, you know, one of the ways, reasons the law actually passed in the end was that they were able, the Obama administration, the Democrats were able to make deals with a lot of these groups that had fought reform before. And it kind of kept them on the sidelines. And that was, you know, an important part of why they were able to pass it. At the same time, obviously, these groups had their concessions they demanded, and that also explained how it was shaped. But so it was a lot of different factors. And, and I do want to mention the individuals. I mean, people, the fact that, you know, Barack Obama became the nominee and that, you know, he is someone who had spent a lot of time dealing with healthcare. He used to see it all the time when he was in the Illinois state legislature. He had worked on it. His mother um, had dealt with insurance and worried about paying her medical bills and that he saw that that was all part of his. He believed in that and he believed in this as something that was important. And the leaders in Congress, when he took over, were all longtime veterans of these fights. And that made a difference too, not just in their commitment to the cause, but also their ability to shepherd through this very difficult process of actually crafting and passing a law. You mentioned the personal toll that it can take on people. And you also mentioned how the ACA, when it was passed, was kind of seen as a step in the right direction towards universal coverage and that it covered certain holes with problems with insurance. And I was wondering what specifically those polls look like. And I, I suppose this answer might entail what people could have expected buying insurance before the ACA and after. So if you think about what the system, let's take a snap. Let's why don't we maybe think about a snapshot of the healthcare system circa 2007, 2008, right? So the majority of people who work, work for large companies and get insurance that way and they and their families. That's a lot of people. You know, I mean, and, and and that's an important political fact of life, which is that these are people who they may not love their insurance, but it's there and they've used it. And most of them probably are going to be wary of changing it, even if they've had bad experiences. So you had a system where you had a number of people insured that way. You have another very large group, nations elderly, who who have universal coverage because of Medicare. Again, not a perfect program and whatever, but you know the, the over 65 population has Medicare. And then you get into everyone else. So you have sort of two groups of people who sort of go without healthcare. One is a group that cannot afford it. It's too expensive for them, or they don't work for a job that offers it. And there are programs out there for these people. The most obvious is Medicaid, which exists. But the problem with Medicaid is every state has its own version of it. Some states, it's very minimal. You really have to be well below the poverty line to be eligible. And if, depending on your demographic profile, you may not be eligible at all. I mean, you know, pregnant women are eligible. Children are generally eligible, but like adult men, frequently not eligible. And again, you have to be quite poor to qualify in some states. On the flip side, there are states that are more generous, but even in those states, it's sort of incomplete and only goes up to about, you know, maybe the poverty line or a little higher. There's one or two states where it goes significantly higher than that, but even there, there's pockets. The point is a lot of people just can't afford health insurance and the public programs that exist are not nearly big enough to make it a real guarantee. So you have that issue. Then you have a second group of people 
who are locked out of insurance because of their pre-existing conditions. It's a little complicated when you get in the weeds of who we're talking about. So if you have an employer plan in general, and you've had an employer plan and you develop a condition, then as long as you keep an employer plan, you're not going to lose your coverage um, because there's various protections written into the law. But if you lose your coverage or say you were born with something and you're trying to buy coverage on your own, in the world of sort of people who buy insurance on their own, not through an employer, they're subject to sort of scrutiny from insurance companies. And basically, this is the famous pre-existing condition exclusion that you hear about. So if you have diabetes or you're a cancer survivor and just you can go down the whole list, it can be relatively minor things. It can be the most serious conditions, whatever. If you try to buy insurance directly from, a, from an insurer, they're going to do a whole profile on you. And if they discover you have one of these or more of these conditions, they won't cover anything related to the condition, which if you think about something like diabetes is going to be almost anything imaginable. <laughs> They might give you insurance, but they're going to charge you much, much higher rates, or they'll just deny you coverage altogether. You have those two groups of people, people who can't afford it, people locked out because of their medical condition. There are people who, if they were in a job to provide a job-based insurance, they wouldn't have to worry about their pre-existing medical condition, but because they're not in a job, then they're on their own. Now they're running into that problem. So basically, the, the, the theory was, okay, well, how do you, how do you plug those holes? And the answer was, well, first let's divide people by income. And let's just recognize that there's going to be a threshold be be below which people who don't have a lot of money are not going to be able to pay for health insurance. You know, maybe they're lucky they work for a very generous employer and they can get an employer plan. But let's assume, you know, even if you have a job with so many low income jobs, don't even provide insurance. So let's just set a threshold. And this was negotiated, but it ended up at about 133% of the poverty line. If you are, if your household income is below that line, you can get Medicaid. And it doesn't matter who you are. We're dealing with the under 65 population here, obviously. But, you know, you're, you're a child, you're an adult, you're single, you're married, whatever. You are eligible for Medicaid. So that kind of takes care of everyone there. Above that line, the assumption is, well, lots of people get employer insurance and they can afford it if they are above 133% of poverty line. So we're going to assume that people who get employer insurance can continue to get it. But we're going to recognize there are people who won't get employer insurance for various reasons. Among other things, you know, maybe you're an independent contractor, right? Maybe you have two part-time jobs. Maybe you have one part-time job. So what we're going to do there is we're going to say, look, this is the sort of most dysfunctional part of the insurance system. This is where they screen for pre-existing conditions. So we're going to set up, we're going to tell the insurance companies they can't do that anymore. We say, you have to give insurance to everybody. You can't screen and by the way, you have to sell real insurance. You can't like sell one of these policies where you go to the hospital and it turns out it doesn't cover hospital care. Like you got to cover the hospital. You got to cover prescription drugs. You got to cover, you know, routine checkups. You got to cover, you know, basic rehabilitative care and you just go down the list. So insurance companies, of course, come back and say, well, that's, that's really nice. But now what do we do? Because no one's going to get insurance until they get sick. And you know, oh, that, that, that's right. That you have a point. That's, that's, that's actually an actuarial issue. So we're going to tell people they have to get insurance. Well, we can't really tell people they have to get insurance, but we're going to fine them. If you don't get insurance, you pay a fine, a penalty, which was called an individual mandate. And then as this is going along, the realization is that, gee, especially since we're now penalizing people, if we, they don't get insurance, we really have to make sure they can afford it. You've got a lot of people, they just don't make enough money. Insurance in this country, you know, even if we bring down healthcare costs, it's still... You know, for a single person, it's going to be many thousand dollars a year. For a family, twenty, you know, thousand dollars a year more. So we're going to provide financial assistance. You know, tax credits. 
that discount coverage deeply, you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars a year, which is sort of like the, the contribution you get from your employer if you have employer insurance. So that became known as the three-legged stool, the, the regulations on insurance, the mandate to get insurance, and then the financial assistance. So you build up Medicaid to cover people below a certain income level for everyone above, either they're gonna get employer insurance, and then you're gonna create this new system with this three-legged stool, and we're gonna make it easy for people to get insurance. We'll create these online marketplaces, and they'll get called exchanges, and that's how we'll take care of everyone. And, and this was didn't come out of nowhere. There was actually, it had been developed over years, and in fact, there was a model for this um, at the state level that became very influential in Massachusetts. And that was very much the model for what they did. So going off of that, what did the Obama administration and the Democrats in the House and Senate have to concede when developing the Affordable Care Act? I, I assume that they had a lot of desires for what the Affordable Care Act could be, and that was obviously limited by the fact that it had to be passed uh, and approved by some Republicans. So what kinds of things were on the chopping block? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously this was this was all drawn up originally by people who believe in universal health insurance. Their idea would be to create something in the United States that looked like one of the European systems you know, something like they have in France or Germany or England, you know, whatever, pick your country. Obviously, that wasn't in the cards. They knew they weren't going to do that, but they wanted to get as close to that as they could. Their, their main concern, their two big concerns were number one, they wanted everyone, three big concerns, they wanted everyone to have insurance, as many people as possible. They wanted it to be good insurance, right? They didn't want people getting stuck with junk plans. And they wanted to, you know, control the cost of healthcare finally and try to kind of, you know, re recognizing that was not going to happen in one in a, in a year or five years, but try to get some control that the phrase they used was bending the curve. Imagine a sort of spending curve that shows healthcare. The idea was to bend it down so it wasn't rising so quickly and, you know, eventually get it to the point where it's not rising faster than incomes. So that was the ideal to do all of that. What kind of a law would it take to do that? Well, you're going to have to spend a lot of money, right? Because you're going to have to like, you know, pay for lots of people to get insurance who aren't getting it now because they can't afford it. And if it's good insurance, that's even more expensive. Um, you're going to have to really aggressively regulate prices or find some way to really send less money to the providers of healthcare, the hospitals, the doctors, the drug makers, the insurers who are sort of doing contract work and all that. Well, all right. So that you have to do all. So you, we're talking about spending a lot of money. We're, reg, you know, we're, we're cutting money to interest groups and we're regulating insurance also, right? We're having a lot of regulations. So just sort of think about the, all the people in the sort of political world who are going to have something to say about that, that they don't like. Well, the hospitals don't want money coming out of their pockets. The insurers don't want, you know, you go down the list. None of them want to lose that money. And of course, they're very influential, right? They, they give donations. They have lobbyists. They run ads. You know, uh, some are more reliable than others. Obviously, it's not like insurance companies are super well trusted, but, you know, doctors are, hospitals are, Right. So you have to run up against that. In addition to that, you have a political system where one party, you know, one party favors spending a lot of money, one party opposes spending a lot of money. And the political spectrum in general, the liberals tend to be more comfortable with more regulation and more spending and conservatives are less comfortable with that. So you need to get this through Congress where, number one, conservatives are probably overrepresented, certainly in the Senate, because of the small population design of the Senate. And because of the way our population happens to be distributed today, 
there is a sort of bias towards low population states that happen to be conservative. So, you know, if you took a snapshot of how conservative the U.S. is on issues like spending and regulation, the U.S. Senate is going to be more conservative. I'm trying to issue a judgment of here what's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a sort of observable fact. I think that's true. So you're dealing with that. Plus, in the United States Senate, we were in a phase when the filibuster had become a sort of routine part of legislating. And that was not always the case. And you don't have to go back that far in history when the filibuster was really, you know, the filibuster, which is a, which basically in which up to, you know, at least 40 senators can object to something and hold it up until you get 60 votes on the other side. And, you know, up through like the eighties and nineties, it was a sort of occasional tool really in the nineties, it kind of changes. And by the time of the Obama administration, it's now just, it's assumed to get anything meaningful through the Senate you're going to have to have 60 votes. So you're in a chamber. (laughs) Democrats had 60 for a brief period when they were doing this. But this is at a period when the Senate's already, they had just 60. Um, The Senate's already kind of uh, skewed towards the conservative side. So they have 60, but you start looking at senators number 52, 50, if you kind of lay them out on an ideological spectrum. And you have a lot of very conservative Democrats from very conservative parts of the country. So even though they're Democrats, they don't want to spend a lot of money and they don't want to have a lot of regulation. So that's all pushing against what they want to do. And then, of course, you have the usual resource problems, which is, you know, even if you are very liberal and you want to, you're, you're fine spending a lot of money on government programs. Well, you know, a dollar you spend on healthcare is a dollar you're not spending on the schools, right? It's a dollar you're not putting into some other cause. Assembling all of that is going to require a lot of compromise if you're going to get it through, because you're not going to get votes 52, 53, 54, up through 60 with your ideal plan. And even in the House of Representatives, which doesn't have the population skew that the that the Senate has, even there, you have a, a diverse Democratic caucus. Not everyone is on board with something as aggressive as the people who designed this up. And laid over all of these are, you know, random constraints on progress. I always talk a lot about the regional issues, which are actually turn out to be really important. I mean, it's a lot of money in healthcare, right? And you start moving it around and and, and people are going to notice. And I was actually just talking about this with somebody. I mean, one of the big tough issues that Nancy Pelosi had to negotiate when she was Speaker of the House was the fact that you know, one of the proposals to sort of straighten out some of the payments in Medicare, which was not a particularly like, it wasn't a liberal thing. It wasn't a conservative thing. It was more of a kind of attempt to sort of make the system more efficient that in a non-political world, you know, very plausibly could get support from Republicans even as well as Democrats. It was not a particularly ideological thing, but it meant moving money around and, and, and not so much, not entirely, not intentionally, but as a consequence, a bunch of hospitals like in places like Wisconsin, uh, we're going to lose money, partly ironically, because they were already doing something that was more efficient, and they would end up getting penalized for it. And there were a bunch of like, members of the House who were extremely upset about this. And you know, they they were not being unreasonable, necessarily, right? They're like, hey, wait a minute, our hospitals are doing this right, they're already more efficient, now they're going to lose money so that some inefficient hospitals and places where they weren't as on the state level as you know, aggressive about cost control, and negotiating, like for everything they did, there was like, you had something like that. All these little issues came up and, you know, they seem trivial in retrospect. They probably seemed trivial to a lot of people at the time. But when you're when, when, when you have and you barely have a majority and you're trying to do this big thing and it's already scary to a lot of people and you already have opponents who are like swinging against it. You know, every layer of complication makes things harder. And at the end of the day, you add it all up. You get to a sort of place where you just it's harder 
it's hard to do big things. And so you end up, you know, reining in. And so you ended up through that process for a bunch of reasons. That's not the only reason with a final product that was a lot less generous, frankly, it had a lot less spending than the architects had hoped. It was the, the, the regulation was less aggressive. Now, a lot of people say, good, you know, spending's bad, regulation's bad. They don't trust the government to do anything. And Lord knows they could show you examples from the years after the ACA where they say, see, we told you. Um, but, you know, from the standpoint of the advocates, from the people who drew this up, they, they certainly felt like they were giving up a lot. This thing that came out on the other end was a very, you know, a much less ambitious scheme than they had dreamed up just years before. Yeah, and for, for all the challenge that it took and all the concessions that had to be made to get the ACA, despite, you know, lots of efforts after its passage, the ACA appears to be beyond repeal. Like, that doesn't seem to be an avenue. Opponents of the ACA or universal health care are taking at this time. So I'm curious, what changes can we expect to see in major healthcare policy in the near future in light of the needs of Americans and other incentives and interest groups? So here we are more than 10 years. What year is it? It's 2022. Yeah, more than, <laughs> more than 10 years after enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And you know, if your criteria for progress is more people who have health insurance, certainly there's been progress. I mean, the uninsured level is the lowest it's been in history. And we have good data to show that, you know, access to healthcare has improved. Health has actually improved. People are, you know, probably living longer because of this. So, you know, you can make a very solid case that things are better than they were, you know, if that's your criteria. Now, there's other criteria, obviously, but, you know, if that's your goal, I mean, there were, you know, money was spent and taxes went up for some people. So, you know, obviously you could say that we're worse off, but certainly in terms of those metrics, we've gotten closer to, say, put this way, we've gotten closer to a system where more people have insurance, where it's closer to a guarantee. At the same time, and we still have a large uninsured population. We have uh, a large underinsured population. These are people with insurance who can't pay their bills. They have very high out-of-pocket costs. Their premiums are punishing. Um, you see it particularly with prescription drugs, right? You know, that, 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 that cost a fortune. The system itself is an organizational mess as it was. People who have, quote, good coverage end up fighting with their insurers when they need it because they can't get approval. Our healthcare system is still way more expensive than any other countries, despite the fact that we have all these problems. So there's a lot of work to do. In 2016 and then leading up to the 2020 presidential election, there was a very vibrant debate on the Democratic side about the next step. And you had sort of two camps. On the Democratic side, we're all glad we did the Affordable Care Act, but we still have all these problems. Let's, it's time we really did what we really need. We really need a kind of European style system. We're going to have what, you know, what's known as a single payer system or Medicare for all, right, is the name for it. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders is the most visible longtime spokesman for this. Uh, where we just say, look, enough of this, have the government insure everybody, have the government have like, you know, global budgets and control over prices, you know, something that, you know, similar to what a lot of European countries have. You need to pull the bandaid off and do the overhaul. And then you had a side of the debate that thought, you know, <laughs> we've been through healthcare debates. These are really hard. That's a huge undertaking. Um, it would be a huge fight with special interests. If it works, it saves money, but that's only if you can get it through Congress. Otherwise, you're talking about, a, you know, it's going to actually require new spending. And even if it doesn't require new spending, it's 
taking spending that now is taking place to the private sector and throwing it through government in a country that's very skeptical of government and doesn't like to hear about taxes, even if you can show they'd save money as a result. And that was the big debate. And, you know, it really felt like there were moments in 2019 as that was gearing up. I actually thought we were headed for another, you know, we were due, all right, 10, 10 years. Yeah, that's about right. Due for the next, you know, next round of healthcare debate. Interesting, you know, two things happened. The winner of the presidential nomination was not the Medicare for all candidate, right? It was Joe Biden, who was very clearly positioned as not a Medicare for all guy. And then the pandemic hit. And I, you know, it's funny, there were times when I thought, oh, I remember thinking, pandemic is going to like that this will finally do it. I mean, that would be the kind of like, you know, once in a generation event, you could imagine shocking the political system enough to do something, you know, make something like Medicare for all possible, especially because it was a health thing, right? And everyone's like, oh my God, healthcare is so important. What are we doing with this crazy system where people don't have coverage and they don't know who's covering them? You know, for reasons I'm not even sure I still understand that all got drained out. Like, I mean, it just, it's, it, you know, that there was no, like by the time of the presidential election, and Biden, you know, taking office, there was really no constituency at all. You know, even in the Democratic Party, even Bernie Sanders wasn't, you know, screaming for Medicare for all. There's a, a lot of different reasons for that. You know, there's only so much bandwidth in politics, right? And there were other things going on, like, you know, insurrections and that pandemic related issues. And we live here in Michigan, we had all kinds of stuff going on. For now, at least we seem to be in this mode of dealing with much narrower Subjects within healthcare, although where there was action was on something where there was this sort of same debate played out on a much more narrower scale, which is about government control versus the private market. And we saw that with prescription drugs. And as part of the negotiations over what was once called the Build Back Better plan, Democrats spent the year working on a plan to introduce uh, government regulation of drug prices, um, which is something that's been part of, you know, it, having the government set prices for prescription drugs is something every other country does, would be part of a Medicare for all system. That would be one of the things that Medicare for all system would do. It was something that people wanted the Affordable Care Act to do. It was dropped early in part because they made a deal with the drug companies. Drug companies were like, well, here's your choice. You can go after us on prices Good luck to you. We have a war chest of, you know, what was it? I got to look up the number. I think it was like $150 million just sitting there and we can just dump that on ads right now. And, you know, or we cannot spend that money to fight your plan. We can put out some nice generic ads about universal coverage. If you just promise to kind of, you know, leave us alone on that stuff and we'll even negotiate some rebates or something that gives you some savings. And that, so they did that. Um, and, uh, you know, it was funny. I think the, the, the debate over prescription drugs played out like a mini version of the ACA debate in the sense that they started with this very ambitious idea that the government was going to set drug prices for both the private sector and the public sector. And it was going to be very aggressive and it was going to produce huge savings. And, you know, one year later, it's gone through the House. It's gone through the Senate. They've negotiated with their 60th or their 50th. They were doing a, the Senate and Democrats decided they were willing to kind of use the budget reconciliation process so they could get by with just 50 votes so they could actually pass something but you know the dynamic of getting the fifth 49th and 50th vote was basically the same for prescription drugs was basically the same as getting the 59th and 60th for the ACA back in 2010 just instead of Joe Lieberman of Connecticut who was famously the last holdout on um, the Affordable Care Act now it was Kirsten Cinema of Arizona how ambitious the drug bill ended up being, was exactly came down to what Kirsten Cinema was willing to tolerate. And that was it at the end of the day. It was, you know, and she wasn't willing to tolerate much. So it was a very, very weak bill. But 
At the same time, the United States government has never had authority to negotiate prices directly of any drugs for any program. You know, there was sort of rebates built into it. And there, I mean, there's a, but not like what we think of as negotiation. And now they do for a limited number of drugs in Medicare that will grow over time. And now that that power is there, you can turn the dials up. Once you've crossed that threshold, it's not so hard to turn the dials up. So you say in a couple of years, we could do more drugs. We could negotiate the prices a little more aggressively. Uh, we could expand this. Right now, it's only for Medicare drugs. We could expand it to private sector drugs. And it's a compromise, and it's not as aggressive, certainly, as the longtime advocates would want. But you know, I think there are skeptics out there who argue there are sort of long-term effects on innovation, with the relationship between spending on drugs and how that affects research and development. I mean, the drug industry will tell you that every dollar that they can't charge for a drug is like, you know, next month's cure for cancer, right? So that's that's a little exaggerated, I would argue. But there is a flip side argument that like, it doesn't matter at all that if we just lower drug prices, they will still do all the innovation because it's all government research and whatever. And I think that's also too simplistic, to be honest with you. And there's not, you know, there's certainly a credible, I don't know if I agree with it, but there's a credible argument that there's a virtue to kind of going a little bit slow on the negotiation, sort of seeing how it plays out, seeing how this process works to get a sense of how it does sort of affect the drug industry. I think there's, you know, the advocates for this would argue that if you do it right, if you take the process of negotiation properly and you really kind of link payments more to quality so that you sort of say, we're willing to pay a lot for a drug if it has value. You know, we just don't want to pay a lot for drugs that don't have value. That you can, there is a win-win to be had here where you're saving money by, and at the same time, you're, you're rewarding drug companies from true innovation, um, you know, and so, but, you know, sometimes it takes a little while to learn that. So kind of going a little slowly and learning as you go and turning the dials in the course of five or 10 years, you know, that's a, that's not a bad way to make policy sometimes with the exception of the fact that you have like large numbers of people who can't afford their drugs. So you do want to take care of that. And there's a lot more work to be done on that. That's great. We're going to close out with a fun fact, because that was a lot of heavy stuff. Um, Very heavy stuff. Um, so I'm curious, since since you're a journalist and a writer, um, if you have a book that you've read recently that you would recommend to everyone right now. It doesn't have to be policy related. It can be fiction. So I'm 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 just starting Bruce Springsteen's biography, oh, yeah. which I've had since it came out. I'm a big Springsteen fan, so I'm excited about that. But I haven't really read it yet, so I, I guess I should pick one that I've actually <laughs> read. Um, why is my mind blinking? Oh, okay. So just think for a second. Oh, you put me on the spot here. Um, you can take out your Goodreads app. And yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. I do. Is I <laughs> when someone's like, "Is there a book that you've read recently that's good?" Let me let me just I'm check. Gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> cheat. I am gonna cheat here. Wait, hold, can can I literally walk away for a second? I have my pile of books. Yeah. Next oh, okay. I know exactly what you're here. Okay, okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got my book. Very different book. Well, somewhat different, but relevant. Um. It's called Jesus and John Wayne. It's by uh, uh, Kristen Dumez. And I'll tell you how I came across. I, I pay attention to news here in Michigan. And there was a story that came across my radar screen early this year about, um, I don't know if you know, Calvin University, which is out in Grand Rapids. And there was a professor there 
whose contract was not renewed because he had presided at a same-sex wedding um, on his private time of, a, of an alum. And it was a fascinating story. And, I, and I'm very kind of, I'm, I'm sort of been trying to, I've thought a lot about that sort of whole, all the issues that have come up around LGBTQ issues and sort of American culture and how we adjust to them and how it affects politics. And I kind of looked into it. I was like, wow, this is such an interesting story about a kind of, you know, uh, sort of institution trying to grapple with like a younger population. And, and, and this story really fascinated me. So I ended up spending a lot of time writing a very long feature piece about it. Give you a sense of the, the book's tone. And I'll read you the subtitle. I heard it's Jesus and John Wayne. The subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. So it gives you a sense of the kind of take on the book. She was super interesting. So I interviewed her about this story and I'm like looking at her book. I'm like, that book sounds really interesting. So I read it and it is a very like, I think one of the more in terms of understanding religion and politics and how they are sort of playing out in America today. I thought it's fascinating. Great read too. It's just, it's an interesting read. It's one of those books that brings in culture and history and politics. Um, uh, it's 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 very much a feminist book, as you might have guessed from the title and the and the and the subtitle. And again, she teaches at Calvin University, which, as my article talks about, you know, has is a is a it's not an evangelical school, but it's a it's a it is a Christian school, you know, with lots of ties to various conservative funders and thought of as a conservative school. But to its credit, always had a commitment to a, a sort of very kind of diverse faculty ideologically diverse faculty as evidenced by her presence there. Anyway, I recommend the book. I thought it was great. Super interesting book. No, it looks fascinating. I'm adding it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, we really appreciate your time and uh, we really appreciate that you were able to uh, impart some of your wealth of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, it was a pleasure. Please stop by. I'll be hanging out, you know, winter semester. I have a little office space that they give me. So, you know, don't be a stranger. Come say hi. Great. Great. Thank you again. Take care.